going to start in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. Um, This is Jesus speaking. Listen to what he says. He says, there was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen. We're going to be on page 92 in our journals. Feasting lavishly every day, but a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. One day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Uh, Abraham's side is a, is a biblical, is biblical terminology for heaven, okay? The rich man died also and was buried and being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life, you received your good things just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here while you are in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot, neither can those from there cross over to us. Father, he said, then I beg you, listen to these words. This is where it all kind of comes to a head in this, in this section of scripture. He says, I beg you to send him to my father's house because I have five brothers to warn them so they won't also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, then they will repent. In other words, he's saying, we don't want to listen to what's been written down so far. I need somebody from the dead to come back. I need a ghost. to. I need somebody to come back and jump up in this house and tell my five brothers. And Jesus, in telling this story, says, no, no, you've already got what you need in order to believe. And then listen to what he says. He says, but he told them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. And in here, it's hard to not step back and realize that Jesus was kind of pointing out what was about to happen even with him. That even in the rising from the grave that Jesus would do, some of us still don't believe. So today, as we continue on in our series, Tethered, I want to speak to you from the subject, eternity, heaven, hell, and the never-ending story. As we look at what the Bible says about the afterlife and what that means for us as followers of Jesus, will you pray with me just one more time today? God, we thank you for your presence here. We thank you for your word. We know that your word is a seed, and as it's proclaimed, that seed falls upon soft hearts, the soil of our hearts. And so, God, I ask today that as that seed is cast out today by the preaching and teaching of your word, that that seed would take root. It would go deep in us and it would flourish in our hearts and in our lives, causing us to be different than how we came in here today. And so we love you. We honor you. We praise you in Jesus' mighty name. Come on. And all God's people shouted and all God's people shouted. Amen. I'm going to date myself, but um, I remember when I would uh, skip school or pretend I was sick or was really sick. When I was growing up as a kid, I'd watch a a lot of different movies during the day. Now, before I show you this picture, I wanna qualify something. I am part of a a, a specific generation. I fall on the backside of Generation X and the beginning of the millennials. So I'm gonna date myself right now. Uh, I'm the generation that that straddled or bridged the pre-internet age to the internet age. Come on, somebody. How how many pre-internet people do I have in the house today? Okay, those are the glory days, weren't they? Y'all remember books? Right? Letters form words, words form sentences, sentences form paragraphs you read top to bottom. Yeah. Um, those, were, those were the good old days. Um, and uh, I, I, was, I was in high school when AOL was invented. Y'all remember AOL? Right? It took 37 minutes to get an image up on your computer. So for those of us on the back end of Gen X, beginning of millennials, if we're slow on the uptake, it's just because we're still waiting for the right word that's happening in internally. We were, we were the generation of latchkey kids. Some of you don't know what latchkey is, but your parent would hand you a key. You would get off the bus and you would go home and you would spend the rest of the day until mom or dad got home. And, and that, that was, that was kind of life for us. So uh, those are my formative years. So this movie that I'm about to show you a picture of, it came out in those years. How many of you have seen the movie Never Ending Story? Okay. How, the, the, look at, do you guys remember this right here? <clears throat> if you've ever wondered what's wrong with my generation, that, that's... That's what's wrong. Um, 
these are what our these are what our movies were. Um, <clears throat> y'all remember the movie Willow? So this is my generation. I grew up watching movies like this and reading stories like this. And what I loved about this movie and many other movies and many other books and stories is that the, the attempt of all of these works of art was to try to show us different places, different spaces, fantasy, if you will, create different worlds for, uh, for you and I to get, to get lost in. And so it's not a difficult notion for you and I to dream up, to conjure up, to think about different, uh, different realities and different spaces. Yet when it comes to the conversation of heaven and hell, it becomes very, very difficult for us. Maybe because inherently inside each of us, we, we, don't, we actually believe that it's not, it's not fantasy and it's not fairy tale. There's something very real to this. Heaven and hell and the subject of the afterlife have captivated and intrigued humanity throughout history. It does not matter the people group, the ethnicity, the religion, or the century. The question, what happens to me when I die, is a question that has consumed the thoughts, the imagination, the study, and the consideration of human history. There's a lot that's wrapped up in the theological study known as eschatology. For many, this study is not just conceptual. What what, What does heaven and hell look like? But for some of us, many of us, it's existential. Why would a good God send people to hell? Maybe you've wrestled with that question before. These are just a few of the questions that cause a greater degree of complexity to the subject matter of eschatology or the, the, or the study or doctrine of last things. Now, as we've said over the past 11 weeks, in each of these messages, we're going to spend a considerable amount of time looking at the academic nature of it before we conclude with the practical truths that shape and guide our lives and faith. But here's what I want to encourage you with today. I am going to give you a kitchen sink full of scripture. Is that all right with everybody? Is that all right with everybody? Lots of Bible. I'm not just like shooting from the hip here. I'm not trying to come up with like what I think it looks like or what I think it is. We're we're looking at scripture today and then we're going to round out this message with some just very practical truths. And I just want to encourage you, if there is anything that just strikes a chord today, gets you excited, lean in, shout amen, because this is probably one of the most, uh, I've been excited about this message since the beginning of this series, because this is one of the most beautiful doctrinal and theological subjects that we can consider. Okay. I want to show you a graph that'll help us see what's included in this study of eschatology. Check this out. The doctrine of last things. Within this, within this doctrine, we have the, the teaching of the kingdom of God. Okay. We have life after death, which we'll be dealing with today. Uh, in a few weeks, this is a really important subject matter, and I know it's on the hearts and minds of a lot of people right now, Jesus' second coming. Okay, I've literally heard from so many people after every single one of this service. Man, I'm, I'm really excited for you to teach this. Just a heads up, I'm not going to tell us when Jesus is coming back. Just to, <laughs> some of you are wondering, you're like, church is going to be packed that weekend. Better get to the last service. Um, so we're, we're going we're to talk about this teaching and it'll, it'll be, a, it'll be, I don't want to say fun, but fun. Um, and there's going to be a lot in the, and then the, the final judgments, each of these subject matter then breaks out. There's, a, there's more graphs that I could show you as to how it breaks down further and further into the theological subject matter that's, that's contained within each one. Now I love how one commentator put it when he said the doctrine of last things puts the capstone on everything one does in Christian doctrine because nothing ever really makes sense until we see how it turns out. Nothing ever really makes sense until we see how it turns out. If you study the Bible at any length, if you read the the letters that are found in the New Testament, many of those writings are formed by the writer's eschatology or their view of the end things. Jesus, the way he would speak at times, was often, was often shrouded with and, and laced with his understanding of how things were going to end. It's why his disciples didn't understand it at times. It's why the Pharisees didn't understand it at times, because there was a view that they had of things coming to this divinely appointed conclusion. Okay? He goes on to write this. He says, when we are doing Christian eschatology, we are reflecting on the final implications of the goal towards which human history is moving. The study of eschatology causes us to look at the reality, here it is, of a divinely appointed end. I'm going to crack a joke so I don't offend everybody without telling you that it's a joke. But did you know statistically, one out of one people die? <laughs> turn your na- Come on, turn to your neighbor and say, that's good math right there. That's good math. Okay. <laughs> we, don't, we don't like to talk about it. 
Um, some of you are even offended. Like, how could you even be like, how could you be joking about, about this issue? Well, at the end of the day, I think as Christ followers, we should have a very different framework in understanding the end of things because we understand the promise of things. But we don't like to talk about the end of life. But listen to what Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, if the Bible isn't more clear. And just as it is appointed for people to die once and after this, judgment. I know, super Caleb moment. <laughs> Paul ends in his book, The Moody Handbook of Theology, writes this. All orthodox Christian theologians, I'm, I'm going to say this, I'm going to highlight this word now with emphasis, okay? All orthodox. All Orthodox Christian theologians agree on the existence of two eternal destinies for all angels and human beings, heaven and hell. Now, there are teachings that are, that are flying around. Um, this is why Paul would tell Timothy, you need to teach truth. You need to teach, don't, don't forget these teachings. Don't forget what he would call the elementary things for them. But don't forget these things that need to be taught to our churches. So if you're wondering why we're teaching through these things, it's because you as a church needs to be taught these things. We need to understand these things. And it, man, it changes the way that we do life and, and, and this life of faith. But listen to what Paul then says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19. I love this, but it's pointed, it's confronting. He says, if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. If Jesus is just a pacifier for the hard things of life right now, and we have no concept of eternity, we should be pitied more than anybody. That, that's, what Paul, that's what Paul's saying. And this is where some of us are at with our relationship with Jesus. We don't look at the things to come. We only look at what Jesus can do for us now. And if we're honest, can we just be truthful in church today? When things are going good, I don't really need Jesus. But then we run to Jesus when everything is going bad. But if you have a view on eternity, if you have an understanding of last things, man, I need Jesus when it's good, and I need Jesus when it's bad, and I need Jesus in between everything. Why? Because there's so much more. All right? In his book, Basic Theology, A Popular Systematic Guide to Understanding Biblical Truth, Charles Caldwell writes this. Everyone has some sort of eschatology. In other words, everyone believes something about the end of things. Some of us believe in eternity from an orthodox biblical perspective. Some of us have an understanding. We just go into the dirt, right? Nothing happens. What happens? Do we just float around, become Casper? Like, what do we, where, where are we at? Everyone has some sort of eschatology. For many moderns, though, he goes on to write, eschatology is a study in despair. For all things will end in death, the death of the individual and the death of the universe. Charles Caldwell's making commentary on a very popular and a very normal part of what we would see as Western philosophy or Western ideology, especially when it's, when it's contained within an atheistic perspective, which is much of where our modern society is moving to. Would you all agree with me today? And, and so what he's making commentary on, I think, is, is captured very well by the renowned atheistic philosopher Bertrand Russell. Listen to what he says. Now, if you need to close your eyes and listen to this, this, uh, these next few sentences I'm going to read, go for it, because his wording is very clunky, and then I'll, I'll add emphasis to where I want us to focus in on. But this is what he writes. He says, that man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental juxtapositions of atoms, that no fire, nor, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave, that all the labors of the ages, all of the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. I mean, he's super positive right now. And the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. So he's saying anything that rejects this idea of what he's about to call despair, it can't stand in light of his reasoning about things. And this is what, this is what he goes on to say. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, the truths that he's just presented, only on the, here it is, firm foundation of the unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Now, 
That wakes the kids up in the morning. Come on, parents. How many of you think that's a great way to get your kids started for the day? Hey, kids, let's get up for another day of unyielding despair. <laughs> but but that's, what's being, that's what's being presented. For the Christian, however, life ends not in an unyielding despair, but in a glorious consummation of God's eternal plan and purpose and design for our lives. So this is why Paul writes Philippians chapter three, verses 12 through to 21. Long pieces of scripture. Y'all with me still? And he says this, not that I've already reached the goal or I'm already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I have also been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. For I've often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame, and they're focused on earthly things. Verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll look at that in a few weeks. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything unto himself. It's all right. You can clap during that. It gets me hype every time I read it. So this is, this is why when you read the letters of especially Paul, he's got, hey, he's got an end of things mindset about things. He's focused on it. We'll, we'll dial into that in just a few more minutes. A few other things we need to uh, understand about eschatology is that there's two divisions in the subject known as cosmic or general eschatology and then personal eschatology. General or cosmic eschatology draws attention to the final conclusion or consummation of the world and the human race. It is history coming to a divinely appointed end. Whereas personal or individual eschatology draws attention to the divine conclusion of one's own personal life. Death, eternity, and judgment. These are all themes that are picked up within personal eschatology. Here's the fascinating thing that I've found about especially Christians. We all like to get, we all, like to get all up in the, the full thing of end times, the cosmic eschatology, but we never like to consider where we're at with things. Right? We like get distracted in the cosmic reality so that we don't get focused on the personal reality. Because how many of you know the personal reality causes us to confront some things? Like, where am I at with Jesus? How am I living in light of all of this? So let's talk imagery. That's some of the, the, some of the ways that we view eschatology. Let's talk about imagery for a second. Where'd we get our imagery? Where'd we get our concepts of heaven and hell? From a scriptural standpoint, the term heaven is used in three distinct ways and is essential to understanding, uh, is essential to understand from an interpretive standpoint. So if we're going to interpret scripture, we're going to look at scripture and not get confused about certain things that the Bible is saying. We need to understand how the term heaven, how the word heaven is being used. So in the Hebrew, we have the word Shemaian, and in the Greek, we have the word arenos, Okay. Heaven is then used to describe, the term heaven is used to describe three different realities, scripturally speaking. I'm going to ask again, y'all with me? Okay, now we're drilling down academically for a second. The first way that you'll see heaven used if you're reading scripture is heaven is simply describing the atmosphere. Y'all with me? Okay, so when the Bible says heaven here, it's actually talking about where we receive dew. Deuteronomy chapter 13, or 33 verse 13. Frost. Job chapter 38, verse 29, rain and snow. Isaiah 55, verse 10, wind. Job 26 and verse 13, thunder. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10. The Bible tells us that clouds are in the atmospheric heaven, or the atmosphere, clouds. Psalm 147, verse 8, and the birds fly in the sky. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 20. Y'all with me? So at times the Bible will use heaven, and it's really just talking about the sky. 
But you can see really quickly if you start connecting things, how other ideas or other concepts have been formed when you see heaven used multiple times designating certain things. And if we don't get understanding on it, then we can start making up all kinds of wild stuff. Because the other way that heaven is used is heaven is used to describe the cosmos. Okay? So when the Bible says heaven here, it's used to speak about the cosmos or space as we know it. The sun, the moon, the stars, the planets are all considered when the word heaven is used. We see this in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, Psalm 33 and verse 6. And when God places what are called these lights in heaven, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 14. Are we all clear still? So the Bible is just talking about spaces we know. We didn't have the word space, so it's just heavens, right? Have you ever looked at the painted sky at a sunset and went, that's heavenly? Right? Has a kid ever sat next to you on an airplane and asked you the question, man, it's so wild to be able to be in heaven. When you're flying through the clouds at 30 something thousand feet, they don't have another, y'all see what I'm talking about? So are they really in heaven? (laughs) It's not a trick question. Now, The heaven that conceptually you and I wonder about and think about is also used when the term heaven is used in the Bible, and that's the dwelling place of God. This idea would be seen when Paul uses this term. Maybe you've read this before, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 2. I'm about to bring freedoms to some people. When he says third heaven, some of us are like, are there three levels of heaven? No, he was bringing clarity to the fact that I'm not talking about sky or space. I'm talking about where God lives. Y'all tracking with me? So I'm trying to like bring it down for a second and make it less intimidating when we talk about these things, okay? So there's not multiple heavens that we believe in. This is really important when reading and interpreting scripture, okay? Now, what else do we see from scripture? Here we go, kitchen sink of Bible. We see, scripture tells us that John was taken up into heaven, Revelation chapter four, verse one. We see that heaven is a specific place where God dwells, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9. We see that in heaven God sits enthroned, Psalm uh, chapter 2 verse 4 and Isaiah chapter 66 verse 1. We see that in heaven God renders judgment, Genesis 19 verse 24 and Joshua 10 verse 11. We see that God's blessings come from heaven, Exodus chapter 16 and verse 4. We see that God looks down upon his people from heaven, Deuteronomy 26 verse 15. We see that God hears our prayers in heaven, Psalm 20 verse 6. We see that God comes down from heaven, Psalm 144, verse 5, and we see that God's sovereign plan is established in heaven, Psalm 119, verse 89. In the book of Revelation, John would paint a picture of heaven by describing his vision in his letter that we now know as Revelation. So he would tell us that heaven is a place that has beauty and brilliance due to the presence and glory of God. Revelation 21, verses 9 through 11. He tells us that heaven has walls and gates, Revelation 21, verses 12 through 13. He tells us that heaven has foundation stones, Revelation 21, verse 14. He tells us that heaven is measurable, Revelation 21, 15 through to 18. He tells us that heaven is adorned with splendor. It's adorned with brilliant, costly stones. Revelation 21, verses 19 through to 21. He tells us heaven is full of light and does not need the sun and the moon to shine on it. Revelations 21, verse 23. And he tells us that heaven has a purpose for God's creation, and that's to bring him praise and worship and glory. Revelation 21, through to 20, uh, 24 to 26. Y'all with me today? So this is what the Bible is teaching us about heaven. This is where we get some of our imagery from. This is where we conceptually try to work through things, but it still falls short of the truth of what heaven is. Now, everybody shout hell. Hell. (laughs) You guys were the loudest, loudest service on that one. The first service was like, uh -uh. (laughs) uh-uh. H-E double hockey sticks. Um. On the other hand, hell is described in the complete opposite of terms and description. According to the Bible, we see in scripture that hell is an unquenchable fire. Matthew chapter three, verse 12. Mark chapter nine, verse 43 and verse 48. Scripture tells us that hell is a furnace of fire. Matthew chapter 13, verse 42 and verse 50. Scripture tells us that it's an outer darkness. Matthew chapter eight, verse 12. Matthew chapter 22, verse 13, and Matthew chapter 25, verse 30. Scripture tells us it's an eternal fire, Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. 
Scripture tells us that it's a lake that burns with fire and brimstone, Revelation 21, verse 8, and that it's a lake of fire, Revelation 19, verse 20, chapter 20 and verse 10, verse 14 and verse 15. The reason that I'm doing this, some of you are like, is he just going to quote Scripture for the rest of the message today? Yes. My job is to, uh, I felt like in this message, just to just get it all out there for us, put it on paper and start putting it out there so that we can see this right here. The Bible is explicit in its conversation about eternity representing heaven and hell. Are y'all worth, are y'all with me? Five of you. Let's try this again. Are you all with me over here? The Bible is explicit about eternity. Let's try this intersection. The Bible is explicit about eternity. Y'all with me? The Bible is explicit about eternity. Y'all with me? And it's represented in heaven and hell. Okay? Now, the words that are used in Scripture when speaking of hell are often Hades, Sheol, Gehenna, Tartaru. Sounds like a planet from Star Wars. And the abyss. <laughs> the abyss. <laughs> but I want to zoom in on a, on a term that's used uh, quite a few times, uh, and that's the term Gehenna. Because there's um, some really strong imagery that's presented to us in Scripture around this word as it represents an actual place as well, okay? The term Gehenna has a popular backdrop for its use for eternal punishment. Gehenna was taken from the Hebrew word Gehenom, referring to the valley of Hinnom that runs on the south and east sides of Jerusalem. This is really important right, right now, especially in light of some of the things that are happening in the world. This is why there's kind of a heightened, uh, and, um, and I'm gonna, I just want to say this, and I say this very sober-minded. I did not know that this message and some of these subsequent messages were going to correspond with the moment that we are in right now as we look at events that are unfolding across the world, okay? But I do think that it's important for us to, to maybe lean in a little bit more as we talk about this stuff. So I know there's a desire to understand this a little bit more. Um, so this valley, it runs on both the south and east sides of Jerusalem. This was a valley that had a uniquely violent history. Referenced in 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 3, 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 7, and 2 Kings 21, verse 6, this valley was the location of where the god Molech would be worshipped. And through worship practices to this god Molech, Infants, infants, babies would be sacrificed and burnt alive in these ceremonies. It's where we would see the origination of child sacrifice. The prophet Jeremiah would declare this would be the place of God's judgment due to the violent and horrific acts that would take place there. Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 32, Jeremiah chapter 19 verse 6. This place was also where, as things progress forward, this is where trash, feces, the dead bodies of animals and criminals would be burned. It was an ugly place. It was a disgusting place. And so people knew it. So when the term Gehenna was used, there was a visceral reaction to it. Y'all know what I'm talking about? When the term was used, especially for first century followers, they could smell, they could, they could understand. There was, there was sounds, there was history, there was all kinds of things that were involved with this term. And so they knew it at a very, like a, a, at a soul level. Now, my goal today is not to try to convince you of something that has to be received by faith in God's word. My goal today is simply to present to you God's word. Okay? But my goal today is to show you that when it comes to a historic Orthodox Christian understanding of eternity, heaven and hell, according to scripture, these are genuine places. Now, there are some different, um, what I would call non-Orthodox or liberal teachings, liberal orthodoxy. We talked about that at the beginning of this series, okay? That's not a political statement, liberal as in, as in moving away from orthodoxy that do not align with historic orthodox Christian teaching on the issue of heaven and hell. My job today is to present to you the orthodox teaching of this subject matter. So it's with all this that the famed writer in his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis would write this. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. So beautiful. Our faith in Christ is not just for the world now, but for the world to come, eternity. The question that we must all ask ourselves is, what does eternity hold for me? And this is where we explore the most pressing question concerning God. If God is a good God, 
why would he send people to hell? How many of us have wrestled with that question before? Asked that question before? I know for many people, it's one of the questions that keeps them away from engaging with God. I'm going to try to answer it at least at a 30,000 foot level. What we must understand, I want you to hear this today, church. What we must understand about God is that his goodness is defined by his nature and his character, not by our feelings. I'm going to say it one more time. God's goodness is defined by his nature and his character, not by our feelings. Right? And that's an important thing to note because what happens is that many times we try to define God's goodness how, by, way, by way of how we feel about something that we've read or understand about him. Right? And then we make the, we make the stance, God is good or God is bad, based upon how we don't feel like we like what he has to offer us. I'll put it this way. I uh, studied in Australia for a while in college, and I fell in love with two different food groups there. Thai food and Indian food. Now here's my firm, firm conviction is that when God tells us that he is setting a table for us in heaven, it has Indian food at it. I'm just sorry. Y'all don't know. You don't know. So I became, I got got on a first name basis with these two restaurants as I would eat Thai and, and Indian food. So I've had people, knuckleheads, knuckleheads, walk up to me as we're having these conversations And they tell me, man, Thai food, it's just, I don't like it. It's gross. To which I punch them. (laughs) And then I reason with them. But here's what they're saying. I don't get mad at them. What they're saying is that Thai food's not their preference. But it doesn't define whether it's good or not. Come on. Just because you don't like it doesn't mean it's not good. Why? Because there is a way that it's been designed and made. Right? There's spices that go into it and, and, and the curries and, and the meats and everything that goes into it. It's designed a certain way. It's put together a certain way so that it's tasted a certain way. So whether it's your preference or not does not define whether it's good or not. And so what people do is we have a tendency when it comes to food is we say outlandish things like that's not good. It's like, well, no, there's a lot of people who really enjoy Indian food. Come on, somebody. Right? But there's some people that don't enjoy Indian food, but it doesn't make it not good. Now, there's holes in the analogy I know from an apologetics view because God's not Indian food. Um, (laughs) Although, um, but what I'm trying to drive us at is that your preference doesn't define God's goodness. You may not like the understanding of eternity but that doesn't negate the fact that God is good. You may not like this idea, but it doesn't define his goodness, his nature and character, because he's the authority of it all, the creator of it all, defines his goodness. This is why Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, verse 2, now we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on truth, because he's the originator of truth. We know through scripture that God is a holy God. Come on, somebody. He is a perfect God. He is a just God. But that's not the God many of us want. We want a grandpa God who with a Werther's original in his pocket pacifies our pain and looks the other direction when we willingly and maliciously defy his desires and design for our lives, don't we? But the God of the Bible is the God who hates sin and wickedness. He can't stand in the presence of it because he's holy and perfect. He is a jealous God of his creation and generous with his blessings. He is the God who guides history and is building his church. He is the God that parted seas for his people, rained down fire for a prophet, caused the sun to stand still for a battle, and guided the stone of a shepherd boy. He is the God that gave you and me authority to pray over sickness, cast out demons, and be empowered by the Holy Spirit, and be healed in his presence. He is the God that sent his one and only son to die for you and me and raise on on the third day that whoever should put their faith in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That is the God of the Bible and church. He's a good God. Come on, someone shout, he's good. 
So let's look at one more important section of Scripture when facing this question. Then we're going to land the plane, look at some practical truths. Romans chapter 6, verses 15 to 23. Paul writing, he says, what then? Should we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? So he's asking the question, Could we just, should we just sin? Should we just go wild and out because I'm under grace? Right? He goes, absolutely not! Exclamation point. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. And having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. I'm using a human analogy. This is Paul. He says, I'm using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. In other words, what he's saying, he's like, I'm trying to use an analogy because you're all slow on the uptake. That's what he's saying to the... Okay, for just as you were offered, uh, just as you offered the parts of yourselves as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater lawlessness, so now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in what? Sanctification. We talked about that in the series. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. In other words, we say when you were wild and out, you didn't care about righteousness. It hadn't. It, it didn't pertain to you whatsoever. Okay, so what fruit was produced then from the things you are now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. But now, since you've been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification. And the outcome is eternal life. And this, then he says this most pointed statement. He says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there may be semantics in this. I want to try to wrestle out as easy as I possibly can. God doesn't send us to hell. Our sin sends us there. And he's a just judge. Does that make sense? What Paul is saying is that there are wages to sin and it's death. Notice he uses two words. He says there are wages and there's a gift. There are wages to sin, and then there's a gift from God. And this is how many of us live. I want my wages. Give me my wages. I want to just do whatever I want to do. Wages. But then there's another posture. I received a gift. One is done in pride and rebellion, and another is done in humility and grace. God doesn't send because he's bad. He's a just judge because he's good. But we receive the wages of our sin, and that is death. Am I talking to anybody in church today? And this is a very important thing, lest we think that God is bad. Actually, because of all of this, we see that God is good. And if God is good, why would we not want to receive the gift that he has given us? Listen to the proposition that we make. God, how can he be good because of this whole hell thing? Well, he's good because he provided a way out of it through Jesus. The goodness, oh, come on, somebody. The goodness was seen in the gift. The goodness was seen in the gift. How many of you ever gotten a great gift before? You're like, man, that guy's awesome. The goodness of God was seen in the gift. He didn't be like, well, it's up to you guys. Have fun with that whole sin thing. No. So I need to provide a way out. And he gave Jesus. So with all this being said, I'm going to invite the team up. Land this plane. I want to look at the practical truths, three essential truths concerning eternity and what it means for us right now. And I hope these just help us kind of walk through everyday life, maybe in a little bit different of a way. Here's the first thing that we need to understand. Number one, come on, everybody shout number one. The first thing we need to understand is this, is that eternity brings meaning and fullness to the temporal. Eternity brings, maybe a better way to say it for you, is that, that eternity brings meaning and fullness to the life we live now. That's the temporal. Because some of us don't have it. 
Some of us are running around from thing to thing. If I could just buy one more thing, then I'll get meaning. If I, if I, could, just have, if I could just have one more experience, then maybe I'll find meaning. So you're just, you're flying through experiences and you're flying through material goods and you're flying through people to find meaning. Can I tell you the stuff and things of life will not give you meaning? That next illicit relationship will not give you meaning. The greatest experiences on the planet will not give you meaning and fullness to life. There's only one thing. His name is Jesus. And when we look to eternity, we realize, oh, there's where meaning and fullness is. And that's how, that's how I have meaning and fullness now. This is why some people have nothing in this world, yet they are so fulfilled. Because they have a different perspective on things. Am I talking to anybody in church today? Yeah, but eternity brings meaning and, and, and fullness to life. I've watched on Instagram over these past few weeks. Y'all heard of the sphere? In, in Las Vegas, the big round dome covered in LED screens and on the inside LED screens and it, it seats 18,000 people and apparently it has the greatest sound system in the world. We're trying to figure out how to get it for church. And so <laughs> that was Pastor Seth's budget request. <laughs> I was like, what's the sphere? <laughs> um, and so I watched on Instagram and just so you know, when I say these things, I'm not, I'm not throwing shade on these things. I think they're beautiful. I love seeing the, I, I love seeing human creativity and the ingenuity of, of who we are, the things that we can build. But I couldn't help but sit back for just a moment when I watched some of the Instagram feeds of 18,000 people looking at all this imagery flying over them and listening to the best sound system in the world. And I couldn't, I couldn't stop but think to myself, oh, you don't even know the half of it. How much better will heaven be? How much, how much greater the images were created by artists. It was created by AI. But can I just tell you that the God of heaven has put everything else together and what we can create through AI and through personal re, like art, like artisans and so on and so forth is it pales in comparison to what God does with the brushstroke of his finger. It pales in comparison to what God just breathes out. It pales in comparison to what came out when he said, let there be. So eternity brings meaning and fullness to the temporal. This is why Paul writes Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 to 27. This is why he writes this piece of scripture. Paul wrestled with this stuff, just like you and I do. And listen to what he says. Maybe this will strike a chord with some of us. For, for me, to live is Christ to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. And I don't know which one I should choose. I'm torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ. Come on, church, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I'm persuaded of this, I know that I'll remain and continue with all of you for, for your progress and joy in the faith so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. And then like a good pastor, he sums it up and he says this, but just one thing, just one thing I want you to remember. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Just remember that our meaning doesn't come from the days that we step in this life now. Our meaning comes from something greater. The fullness that you're looking for is not in stuff and things. The fullness that you're looking for is not in the people around you. The fullness that you're looking for is not an experience. The fullness that you are looking for is captured in one person, and that is God. And he was made flesh through Jesus, and he breathed out his spirit upon us. All the meaning that you are looking for is eternity kept. Number two, our understanding of eternity should impact how we live now. Write this down if you're taking notes tonight. We must live in light of heaven. And we'll talk about this in the second coming. I don't know when Jesus is coming back. Spoiler alert for the message I'm going to do. Even Jesus said, it's not for you to know. Thanks, God. But the Bible tells us there's groanings right now that the earth groans. 
so in light of heaven, there's a way that we should live. Listen to what Titus chapter two, verses 11 to 15 says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous and godly way in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Proclaim these things, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Our understanding of eternity should impact how we live now. How we live now. It's not waiting I don't, my life doesn't change because I'm trying to earn something. My life changes because of what's been given to me. I don't behave because I'm trying to earn God's favor. Oh no, my life changes because I have God's favor. I don't think differently because I'm trying to willpower my way through life. No, I have a transformed, renewed mind by the grace and the goodness of God. I don't live fearful anymore. Why? Because perfect love casts out all fear. So this God that I believe in, this eternity that's calling me home eventually, it changes how I live now. Number three, the truth of eternity should bring hope. Come on, hope to us now. The truth of eternity should bring hope to us now. And I know there's some people that walked into this room today hopeless. Can I, I just pray as we read this next little bit, as we close right now, I pray that you leave this place hope filled because what we know about eternity and what we know about God should bring us hope right now for this moment that we are living in. First Peter chapter one, verses three to four, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ because of his great mercy, he has given us, come on somebody, a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. And where's it kept? It's kept in heaven for you. Come on, where's it kept? It's kept in heaven for you. Come on, how many of you are like, man, I can't wait for my inheritance. It's kept in, in heaven for you. What is that inheritance? You ever wondered? Like, what are the details on that inheritance? Well, the Bible tells us, and that's what I want to close on right now. This is why heaven offers you hope. Why it offers me hope right now. Matthew chapter five and verse 12 tells us that because our reward in heaven is great. Matthew chapter six, verse 20, because there is treasure that has been laid up in heaven for you and I. John chapter 14, verses two to three, because a place is being prepared for us in heaven. Matthew chapter eight and verse 11, because a table is being set for us in heaven. Second Corinthians chapter five and verse one, because it is a building from God. Philippians chapter three and verse 20, because this is where our citizenship is. First Peter chapter one and verse four, because we have an imperishable inheritance that is being kept for us. Second Corinthians five and verse two, because it is the longing of our hearts. Hebrews chapter four and verse one and 11, because it is a place of rest. Matthew chapter six and verse 10, because heaven has a will for earth right now. Ephesians chapter one and verse 10, because it is a place of unity. Colossians chapter one and verse 20, because all things will be reconciled. Second Peter chapter three and verse 13, because heaven is where righteousness dwells. And Revelation verse 20, 21 to 22, because heaven is where all things are restored and made new. Heaven is your home and it's my home. And we're living on the edge of it. So it's good and it's beautiful. And like Paul, oh, I'm torn because I want to go, I want to go home where there's no more weeping and there's no more tears. There's no more pain and there's no more cancer. 
there's no more war, there's no more sickness, and there's no more racism, and there's no more, and there's no more. And then, oh, I long for that place. Come on, church, is anybody like me where you long for that place? I long for the goodness of heaven, but, but my job is not done here yet. And until he takes me home, there's one more person that needs to hear the gospel. There's one more person that needs to be saved. There's one more family that needs to be transformed. There's one more person that needs to be prayed over. There's one more college that needs to be saved. There's one more high schooler who needs Jesus. There's one more person who needs to come off drugs. Why? Because that is the gospel. Oh, heaven's my home. But until we get there, there's more to do. There's more to see. So, eternity. Heaven, hell, and the never-ending story. That's what eternity is for you and me. It's the never-ending story where we are told that every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every person will stand before the God of the universe and cry out, holy, holy, holy is our God almighty, worthy is the Lamb. In Jesus' mighty name, and the church shouted. I want to ask everybody to bow your head and close your eyes in this moment. Jesus, there's some, even just one person today who needs to say yes to him. And eternity hangs in the balance. And so we're going to pray a prayer together, all of us together today. And this is us just simply saying, Jesus, we need you and we want to follow you. Save us. It's a prayer of salvation, nothing fancy in the words, but rather the heart from which these words come. If that's you today, pray this out loud with us. All of us are going to do it together so we don't leave anybody out. Come on as loud as you can, everybody say, Jesus, I'm giving you everything. My past, my right now, and my future. I'm putting it all in your hands. Today, I'm acknowledging you as my Savior. I repent of my sin my ways, and today I am receiving not wages, but your gift. Thank you for saving me in Jesus' mighty name.